So do you believe in miracles? I'm glad to hear that. Since I became a Christ follower, I have, I've never had any problems believing the miracles of Jesus. Uh, I believe he healed uh, people's physical infirmities, and so I try to follow his example and to pray for those who are sick. Um, I, I believe he delivered people from the clutches of the devil, and I have prayed for others. Uh, I believe he raised people from the dead, and yes, on some rare occasions, I've prayed for that too. Haven't seen the answers to that prayer yet, but I'm not giving up. The Methodists have always believed in, in miracles. In his journal for December the 15th, 1742, John Wesley reports that he and a Mr. Merrick both fell sick. But while Wesley began to recover, Merrick became worse. Until Christmas Day, it appeared that he had died. However, as Wesley and, and others prayed, Merrick suddenly awoke and began to regain his strength. You can imagine what that would do for your faith. Uh, John's brother, Charles, was healed from a severe condition when a woman commanded him to be healed. She prayed in the name of Jesus Christ. A Methodist preacher, John Bounton, reported healings, revelatory dreams, even rainfall through the power of prayer. In fact, one skeptical physician was converted when one of his Methodist uh, patients was cured from her sickness. It was enough to convince him that Christ was real. But it's not just Methodist, of course. A 2006 Pew Forum survey revealed that hundreds of millions of Christians in the 10 nations surveyed claimed to not only believe, but to have witnessed divine miracles. So if you believe in them, guess what? You are in good company. But do you ever wonder about the possibility of a miracle in your life? Do you ever expect God to do the unexpected? Now, sure, we believe in God. And sure, we believe in, in the power of God to do miracles. We read stories in the Bible, and, and we hear about it happening in other people's lives. But do you believe that it can happen in, in your own life? Do you believe that a miracle is possible? That it could happen today, tomorrow, maybe right here during worship. And what would our worship be like here on Sunday mornings if we came each and every Sunday with the expectation of the supernatural taking place? What might happen? Well, today we're starting a four-week series on four of the seven miracles that are found in John's Gospel. And we begin with the first miracle in chapter 2 of his gospel. Let's hear God's word. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to them, said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Well, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out 
and take it to the master of the banquet. And he did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Now he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, You know, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. Amazing story. If you've ever wondered why pastors seem to leave wedding receptions early, this may give you a hint. Now, I know some pastors say it's because they attend so many of these events, and and since most of them are on Saturdays, they just don't have time. And some uh, say it's because the presence of the clergy tend to dampen uh, the party. So the considerate thing to do is to get out of the way so that the partygoers don't have any guilt or shame. But I wonder if the real reason is a lurking fear that if we pastors linger too long and the bar runs dry, that somebody will come up to us and say they have no wine and expect us to do something about it. I mean, if I was at a wedding and, and, and somebody told me that they were out of wine, I guess I would just hop in my car and drive to the nearest wine store. And this is one miracle I've not prayed for yet. I mean, think of the liability issues. One of those party goers on his donkey on the way home late at night and he fell off and got hurt. I mean, Jesus would have to hire some lawyers, wouldn't he? But you have to admit, this miracle is different, different from the others. I mean, the other miracles seem to have a a simple justification. Jesus had compassion upon those who were in need, the the healing of the official son, the paralytic, the the feeding of the 5,000, the blind man, and, and raising Lazarus from the dead. But turning water into wine? And it wasn't just good wine, was it? I mean, it's... It's the best wine. 150 gallons of water becomes wine simply to quench the thirst of wedding guests guests who have already exhausted the original supply and have probably already had too much as it is. This can hardly be seen as ministering to the crying needs of humanity. So Mary comes to Jesus. They have no wine. Clearly, she expects him to do something. The one person on earth who knew Jesus better than anybody else knew what he was capable of doing. She had complete faith that he could take care of this issue. And at first, Jesus sounds a little put off, doesn't he? Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. In other words, I've got bigger issues to deal with. Mom, you fix the wine issue. I I don't have time for that. And I can tell you that if I had called my mother woman, she'd have something to say about that. Probably would have knocked me senseless. Now, it sounds more disrespectful in English than it does in the original language. But it doesn't seem to phase Mary in the least, does it? She ignores him. And she told the waiters, Do whatever he tells you. 
So why did Jesus do this miracle? Well, John actually tells us in verse 11. He says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so this first miracle was performed to deepen the faith of his followers. It was to make this definitive statement about who he was and what he had come to do. In fact, in John's Gospels, the miracles aren't called miracles. They're called signs. And so John wanted to leave no doubt in the minds of his readers that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was divine, that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. And so at the end of his Gospel, John writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, John is hoping that you will observe these miracle signs and come to faith in Christ so that you may have real, genuine life. Now, there's something else about this miracle, um, that else that this miracle would point to, and that is this, that Jesus was also about to turn things upside down, that a new age is coming, uh, about to break forth. You see, the, the water jars were, were used for Jewish ritual purification, and so the waters in these stone jars represented the old religious traditions, the outward cleansing to make one pure and holy. But Jesus argued time and again with the religious authorities, uh, butted heads with them, that the, uh, that the ritual cleansing uh, of the body and the eating of, of kosher food isn't going to touch the heart. Can't touch the heart. And so Jesus, by turning that cold and, and colorless water into to red and sparkling wine, was serving notice that a new day was dawning. And so Mary's words to Jesus, they have no wine, was in a very real sense an indictment upon the barrenness and the dryness of the religion of that day. But what about us? What would people say about us? Would they say they have no wine? Is there wine in our worship? I mean, when you, wor when you walk into worship on Sunday, do you come expecting God to show up? When was the last time that you staggered out of church drunk with the real wine of, of worship, your whole being in, in ferment under the, the power of God's presence? H have you ever felt intoxicated like the disciples on the, on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down and, and infused new power into them and experienced God's love and God's mercy and the infilling of the Holy Spirit? Now, I'm going to admit that I prefer safe and soothing worship. I love it when we get to the end of the worship and everything went exactly as planned. That's just kind of my personality. It's my nature. But I wonder if that's really what I need. You know, I mean, wine, wine is hardly safe. It's explosive. It's heady. Uh, it can bring out the worst in you. It can bring out the best in you. It can make you feel terrible. It can cause you to lose control. But I wonder if sometimes that's not what we need the intoxicating spirit to get a hold of our worship and to turn it from something that's predictable and safe and is into the wine of astonishment and surprise. Is there wine in our worship or in our witness? 
Are we just trying to be nice people? A vague belief in the big man upstairs, this mild glow of humanitarian benevolence? I mean, I admit, sometimes the best I can do is not to be a jerk. Sometimes when I lay my head in the pillow at night, I'm like, well, at least I wasn't a jerk again, you know? But is that what we're going to settle for? What if we had a real passion for Christ? What if we had this single-mindedness to to live out a a radical walk with Jesus no matter matter what it takes, a a refusal to go along with the crowd just because it happens to be popular at that moment? Do we engage in outreach because we want to give relief to the suffering, because we just want to bring relief to a guilty conscience? Do we invite people into a relationship with Christ out of duty or because we want them to experience real life in Christ? Ah, there's nothing wrong with duty, but it can cause us to miss the deepest joy, that real wine of holy and sacrificial living. But that's not all. I think this miracle also points to the abundance of the, this new age that Jesus is bringing in. And in fact, we see a foretelling of this, in, this miracle in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. The prophet speaks of this new day coming, and he says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. I love that. A feast for all people. Now, if you tend to think of God as a stingy God, this passage may shock you. You see, I think sometimes we get in our minds that God is some kind of a cosmic killjoy who only sends bad stuff into our lives, who can't wait for you and I to ask him for something so that he can say no. And if this is your understanding of the nature of God, I'm here today to tell you that you are wrong. That's not who God is. God is a giver. In fact, John will say in chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he, what? Gave his only begotten son. God gave. That is the very heart of the gospel message. And so this miracle teaches us something else about the nature of God, and that's this, that we can ask for anything. See, we're out of wine. Ask Jesus for help. That should work. But you're thinking, isn't that a little selfish to ask for more wine for the party? I mean, shouldn't they have planned better? And pastor, aren't the problems of the world enormous? People are starving. There's there's a plague going on. There's injustice. There's poverty. There's oppression. God doesn't have time for my insignificant problems. But if we look at this miracle, we can clearly see that, in fact, that's not true, that God does have time for your little things, the little stuff. Sometimes people will come up to me and they'll say, you know, I I never ask God for anything for myself. And I reply, well, why not? It's not as though God has this limited resource and and he can't bless you and and someone else as well. It's not like, like he's, well, okay, that was the last person for today. You'll have to wait until tomorrow. God has an unlimited reserve of blessings and he's, he's more than willing to give them out. There's plenty to go around. Don't think God's limited. Sometimes people will say to me, you know what, I, I don't think I should bother God. Bother God. 
It's God's nature to bless. There's nothing he enjoys more than, than to shower his blessings upon you. But you have to ask for it. You see, Mary has to ask. And Jesus said as much in, in Matthew 7. He said, ask and it shall be given to you. Uh, James says it in the reverse in, in chapter 4. He says, you have not because you ask not. God is delighted to respond generously, even to the small stuff, but you need to ask. God's bounty is limited only by us, not by him. In one church I served some years ago, I had a secretary named Ida, and I was in my office, and, and I could hear her sobbing out in the, in the lobby, and so I went to check on her. Ida, what's wrong? She said, oh, pastor, these are tears of joy. She said, I just got off the phone with my husband. You see, we have two children in, our, in a private Christian school. And we needed to come up with $3,800 to pay their tuition, and we just didn't know where the money was going to come from. And so we were going to sell one of our cars to pay for it. But my husband just got off the phone with the school administrator, and he told us that the school is going to waive the tuition, that our kids are such good students, and the schools uh, want them in the program. I just said, you know, God told my husband several months ago that he would take care of it, not to worry about it. But we just didn't know how. She said, Pastor, what I've discovered is that all of life is a walk of faith. And I just write, it is. God's bounty is limited only by us, not by his resources, by his power, or by his willingness. But I want you to notice one more thing. What Mary says to the servants. She says, do what he says. You see, Mary totally trusts Jesus to do it, but she also knows it needs to be done Jesus' way. We can ask him for anything, but we have to be willing to let him do it his way. The Apostle Paul says in, in Philippians, he says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known unto God. In everything. But here's the thing. As we do that, it's always with the yielding that we see in Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, Lord, not my will, but yours. And so we can bring to Jesus our small problems. We can bring a wedding embarrassment. We can bring to him our family embarrassments. We can bring to him our weaknesses and our pain and our troubles and the things that we think are beneath him because they are due to our guilt or to our shame or to our mistakes. And he says this. He says, my child, ask me anything, but as you do so, yield everything. Acknowledge that it is my will and not yours and that it is my timing and not your timing. I mean, he is the king of heaven and he will take over and do things his way if we put it into his hands if we had let him do it his way. For years and years, I have prayed that God would give this church the opportunity to bring revival and renewal to some of the struggling uh, churches in our area. And over the course of years, we had talked to two different churches, but the doors just weren't opening, and so I decided it wasn't God's will, that it wasn't going to happen. And then one day, 
Jonathan, I think you were with me. We were talking to our church, our conference church planner, and, um, and he asked if we might be interested in helping Salem Church. And I said, sure, we would be glad to talk about it, but I really didn't think anything would come of it. Well, something did come of it. <laughs> the Salem Church leadership had the same mission, the same DNA, the same vision as us, so it was this perfect fit. And then God brought our leadership team, first in the form of, of Tim Caldwell, who said yes to leading the team the same day that I asked him. And then the, the biggest miracle, all the people on the team came and asked me if they could be on the team. They volunteered to serve. Folks, in the history of the world, I'm not sure that has ever happened, at least not in my life. Doesn't come that easy. And then the money came. You know, we, were, we had figured out how much this was going to cost, and we, we looked at, it looked to be more than what we had. And as we were discussing it as a team, one of our members handed me a little note with a pledge on it. Enough to take care of the costs. Now, don't get me wrong. We have run into obstacles, and it's been hard work, and at times it's been frustrating, but the building is now open, and we're going to have our very first worship service in there, September the 13th. It's coming up. And here's the thing. It didn't happen at all the way I thought it should. It didn't happen at all at the timing when I thought it should happen. It, none of the things that I thought were going to make it work worked. It was all God's doing. When we surrender it to God and let Him do it His way, amazing things can happen. And so I believe in miracles, and I hope you do as well. I have seen them, and I'll bet you have too.